0: This driverless car technology is going to
1: happen. A first-class lounge on wheels, free from any stress of having to take control. One of the nice things about self-driving mean, cars is that they will only continue to get safer.
2: Driving on a wide-open, empty road is one of life's great pleasures. But when stuck in nose-to-tail traffic jams, who hasn't ever dreamed of a car capable of controlling itself? Well, while a sassy, back-chatting, sentient vehicle like Kit in the 80s hit show Night Rider Maybe a tad too far. Progress in artificial intelligence and autonomous technology means the dream of self-driving cars is actually much closer than we think. Driver assist functions are becoming increasingly sophisticated and commonplace, while further innovations are boosting both the safety of vehicles and their efficiency. So whether you're impatient to let the machines take over or afraid that they're here to take your place, don't worry. This is the future of the car a brand-new podcast brought to you by Audi Update. In today's episode, artificial intelligence will be dissected under the microscope as we discover all about the latest breakthroughs in machine learning. But rather than simply focus on AI in the car world, we'll first get a potted history of this fascinating but complicated subject and the many applications it is finding. To do so, we're joining journalist John Silcox inside an Audi that boasts some quasi-autonomous functions of its own. He will be accompanied by a pre-eminent researcher in the field of AI. And together, the pair are heading out for a drive around Oxford, the famous university city. We will learn about some of the key notions of AI to demystify it a little, plus discover the incredible advantages it could offer our society. We will also discover how it's helping to make driving more comfortable, safer, and more energy efficient, as well as touch on some of the technical, legal and ethical barriers we are still facing on the road towards fully autonomous vehicles.
3: Hi there, Michael. Good afternoon. Very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. The people listening to us won't actually know who you are, so do you mind introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about what you do?
4: Sure, my name's Michael Wooldrich. I'm a professor of computer science at Oxford University and I'm the head of department of Computer Science Oxford University. But I guess the reason we're here today is that what I do for my research is artificial intelligence and I've been a, an artificial intelligence researcher and AI researcher for more than 30 years now.
3: Audi have made the headlines, and this is why it's so interesting talking to you
4: today quite recently, or in the
3: past few years actually, with their sort of focus on next generation automated driving. This is sort of near complete control, which the car sort of takes on. In your opinion, how close are we to that form of reality? And is this something that we're gonna see a lot of?
4: Wow, well, uh, it's a good question. So firstly, I think driverless car technology is gonna happen. I think it's kind of been obvious that it's really going to happen now for about 15 years or so. If we go back 15 years, there was this big competition in the United States organised by a military funding agency called DARPA and it was called the Grand Challenge and basically what you had to do to enter the Grand Challenge is you had to have a car which would drive itself completely autonomously, nobody giving it remote controls or anything, across about 150 miles of desert in the United States. And the first time they ran this competition in 2004 to be honest with you it was a bit embarrassing lots of cars didn't even make it out the starting gate Uh, no car made it more than seven miles and i remember at the time thinking you know okay this is just the we're a long 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 way from this working but the next year they ran the same competition again and a whole load of cars managed it and the winner was a team from stanford university and they averaged about 20 miles an hour over this 140 mile course And that was, for me, that was like, that's at the same level as the Wright brothers at Kitty Hawk. You know, the Wright brothers, they managed to fly about 100 yards, about six foot off the ground. But at that point, it was obvious that powered flight was a possibility. And for me, in 2005, that grand challenge, it became obvious that driverless car technology was gonna happen. But the question is when and what's it gonna look like? There's teams coming at this from a lot of different dimensions. I mean, one way of coming at it is, I think, like the car that we're in, which is basically smarter and smarter cruise control. Uh, you know, original cruise control would just modulate your speed. And then you start adding features like, uh, you know, emergency braking and obstacle detection, you know, giving giving drivers a signal when there's an obstacle, that when the car thinks that there's a danger you might hit something. And that gradually gets smarter and smarter and smarter. And then the other side of this is the teams that really want to do the full driverless car thing. You know, you get into the car and you say, "Take me to Middlesbrough." That I think is still a way off. Maybe we should head out for a little spin
3: in this uh, okay. now. Show me what it can do. <laughs> well, we—I don't think we'll take it onto the uh, to, to its predilection. It's actually an all-road, so that's that would be in slightly <laughs> bumpier things.
4: So here we are, we're driving down Broad Street, this is one of the the great streets of Oxford, and you immediately encounter one of the big problems. This medieval city has got terrible traffic problems. (laughs) And actually, this medieval city has got a real challenge for driverless cars, which is lots of bicycles. I mean, the idea of AI goes back right to the ancient Greeks. I mean, okay. uh, the ancient Greeks had this myth of Hephaestus, who was the blacksmith to the gods, mm-hmm. who used to bring metal machines to life. You know, you can see that, that idea there, even then, there was this idea of... That people were playing with, which is can we make inanimate objects animate? You know, how can can we bridge the gap between the inanimate world and the animate world, of the world of people and animals and so on. So it's a very old idea, but it's only since the digital computer in the 1940s that you know that there's been a path to do it. People have actually had a tool that they could actually try to make this work. So going back to where artificial intelligence came from, it was... So the computers that we all use, uh, that we all use today, and your smartphone in your pocket is a computer, as well as your iPad and your laptop and so on, they are all basically computers. And they all have the same design as the first computers that were developed in the late 1940s and early 1950s. And Alan Turing, he's one of the great names in computing and artificial intelligence, he came up with the template for what those would look like. Mm -hmm. And it's still the template that we look today. And he developed uh, the Turing test, wasn't it? He developed the Turing test, and that was the Turing test was one of the first really serious attempts to think about... One of the first really serious, as opposed to just writing a piece of fiction or something like that, attempts to think about what artificial intelligence might be. And he did that in 1950. And what was really special about the Turing test was that Turing knew about computers. He understood how they worked. And so he was thinking about AI for the first time from the standpoint of the modern computer.
3: Moving forward, what are we seeing now in the realm of AI? Are we trying to replicate human thinking in machines? Or do we want to, do we think that's a, uh, do you think that's a mistake? And should we be looking to try and do something a little bit different?
4: Everybody everybody thinks they know something about AI, very naturally, because we all watch movies and, and TV shows and we read books, you know, where AI appears. You know, so Terminator and Ex Machina and uh, and all, all that, all those kinds often of things. Often framed and, in a bad light. <laughs> often framed in a bad light. And you know, I love those movies and TV shows as much as anybody, but the, well, the version of AI that they are kind of fascinated with is kind of the Hollywood version of AI, which is the idea that we have machines which have the full range of abilities that human beings have, the full range of intellectual abilities and and consciousness and self-awareness and sentience and so on. And and of course, those, those movies and so on, they explore all those ideas. They play with those ideas and see where those ideas take you. The truth is, actually, what's going on in AI right now is a long, long, long way distant from that. I mean, that's not what most AI researchers are trying to do. What most AI researchers are trying to do is to build machines which can do things which basically require brains, either human brains or animal brains, and, and nervous systems and maybe bodies. So, an example would be just a narrow little task like recognising a face in a picture. Something that we find trivial, right? We take it for granted. We don't even think about it. Yeah. turned out to be phenomenally hard to get computers to do that another example automated translation all right now we're, this is a this is a harder problem for us right um, but nevertheless it's it's quite a narrowly defined problem and now we have automated translation tools. They don't do a perfect job, and we could dig into why they don't do a perfect job. But actually, you know, millions of people use these every day. And again, for me, this is one of the wonders of the modern world that you can, on your phone, you know, within seconds, you can translate some text from Chinese to Arabic to Spanish and so on. And I mean, a hundred years ago, if you told somebody that they'd have a universal automated translator in their pocket, they would have just thought that was a miracle. Yeah. You know? And I say it's not perfect, but it will get you around your holiday in Skopelos. Mm-hmm. Contemporary AI is really focused on building programs that just extend the range of what computers can do to get them to do things which currently only sort of human brains can do. Okay. And one of the fascinating things about this is a lot of the things that we think are trivial turn out to be phenomenally hard for computers and a lot of the things that we find really hard turn out to be really trivial for computers like driverless cars i mean we call it artificial intelligence but we don't associate driving a car with intelligence typically it's not a i mean it, it's <laughs> not a lot of drivers on the street it's, especially it's, yeah it's a it's a useful thing to be able to do but we don't think of it as requiring intelligence And that often confuses people when they come across AI for the first time. You know, they think it's all about doing these intellectually hard problems. But the stuff that's really tough for computers, we take for granted.
2: Audi has been looking into this side of things for quite a while now. Nearly two decades, in fact. So let's hear from James Clark, a journalist who specialises in the automotive world and who is going to take us through a potted history of Audi and AI.
0: Audi's vision for the future of mobility is one that won't necessarily feature a driver at the wheel. In fact, some cars won't actually have a steering wheel at all. That probably sounds slightly terrifying, but don't panic. The idea is that not having to drive in bumper-to-bumper traffic will make our lives a whole lot less stressful and give us more time to do the things we enjoy. Keen drivers needn't worry either. In some cars, you'll still be able to enjoy your favorite road from the driver's seat but then sit back, relax, and let the car take care of more mundane journeys. Audi has been researching, and subsequently introducing autonomous features to its cars for the best part of 20 years. Just take a feature like Radar Automatic Cruise Control for instance, which first appeared on the spec sheet of the A8 Luxury Saloon way back in 2002. This was then developed into the even more advanced PLUS system, which was capable of warning the driver of a potential collision and applying the brakes in emergency. That featured on the Q7 SUV launched in 2006. Fittingly, Audi's first publicized fully autonomous vehicle made its debut at Pikes Peak Hill Hillclimb in Colorado, the scene of one of the marks great motorsport moments when Group B rallying legend Walter Roll set a new course record at the wheel of the famous Quattro S1 E2 in 1987. Remarkably, a driverless TTS created by Stanford University's Dynamic Design Lab, with assistance from the Volkswagen Electronics Research Lab, made it to the 14,110-foot summit of Pikes Peak in 2010, overcoming 12 miles of sheer drops and more than 156 hair-raising corners. This exploratory outing at Pikes Peak was followed by the creation of an autonomous RS7 Sportback, affectionately christened Bobby by Audi's engineers. The 560 brake horsepower twin turbo RS7 was designed to charge around race circuits at full speed without a human at the controls. Sensibly, an Audi engineer had to occupy the driver's seat in case of an emergency, but a suite of radars, cameras, and GPS systems made sure that Bobby knew exactly where he was on the circuit at all times, whilst a small computer in the boot decided precisely how best to steer, accelerate, and brake meaning that rather than just following the same line, lap after lap, Bobby was able to adapt his driving style to suit the conditions, exactly like a skilled driver would. Impressive stuff, but just imagine what it would be like to sit in the passenger seat as Bobby hurtled towards a tight hairpin or tricky chicane at speeds of up to 120 miles an hour. Designing a car that's sole purpose is lapping a racetrack as fast as possible might not sound that practical, But that technology allowed Audi to put autonomous driving into practice, laying the foundations for the tech to make it out onto the road. In 2017, Audi announced that the new A8 would be fully self-driving at speeds of up to 60 kilometers an hour, that's about 37 miles an hour, making it the first ever production car capable of level three autonomous driving. In its simplest terms, That means that the driver doesn't need to pay attention to the road and can instead relax, choosing to play on their mobile phone or watch a film instead. Disappointingly, restrictive laws meant that the technology wasn't ever implemented and Audi launched the car without the system activated. It's no surprise that autonomous technology is featured heavily in Audi's recent concept cars. The mix of self-driving tech and the futuristic styling are a match made in heaven. The eye-catching Icon was the first of these to break cover. Unveiled in 2017, the concept was designed to, and I quote Audi, combine innovations relating to the drivetrain, suspension, digitalization, and sustainability in a visionary manner. Put simply, the Icon blends angular exterior lines, a spacious, airy cabin, and an ultra-efficient EV powertrain to essentially create a first-class lounge on wheels, free from any stress of having to take control. Don't just think that autonomous tech can only be useful inside Audi's cars, though. The first Audi Smart Factory that opened in Mexico in September 2016 is the perfect example of the versatility of AI in the automotive industry. The site uses state-of-the-art tech, allowing robots to work in harmony with humans to build cars. The semi-autonomous assembly line uses ultra-modern equipment and highly efficient logistics to build around 150,000 Audi Q5 SUVs each year. In turn. This also significantly reduces water, gas, and electricity consumption, improving the factory's carbon footprint. So what does the future hold for Audi's journey along the road to autonomy? Well, this year, the brand unveiled a trio of stunning self-driving concepts. The sky sphere, grand sphere, and urban sphere. The sphere is seen by Audi as a living space. The world that surrounds the occupants, where they can choose to work, relax, or be entertained, So rather than taking over our lives, Audi's plan for autonomous vehicles is to make our lives easier and more relaxed. Just think how much stress you could avoid if you were able to read a book or watch your favourite TV show, rather than concentrate on the road as you crawl along in yet another tedious traffic jam.
2: Back in the car, John and Michael are also looking towards the future while deeply interrogating the nature of AI, as well as the many benefits it brings to mankind.
3: Do you think people are learning, or humans, through researching AI and trying to to work out what intelligence is? Are we learning things about ourselves at the same time as trying to put them into machines, or...?
4: Yes, I think we are. We're discovering, I think, I mean, one of the reasons that I find AI fascinating is that it speaks to what it means to be human. Why, you know, what makes us different? What makes us unique? Uh, Why are human beings unique? And and, and what makes us distinct from, if we succeeded with AI, what makes us distinct from artificial intelligence? And so I do think it sheds some light on those questions, which are really fascinating questions to, uh, to investigate. To work
3: out, yeah. And have you seen any interesting applications or novel applications that are coming out that people haven't probably probably associated with machine learning and AI that we're now focusing more on?
4: Well, I think the future of AI, where it's headed, is that just as computers are embedded absolutely everywhere you know everywhere that we do anything there is a computer I mean goodness knows how many computers there are in this car I can see quite a number already but you know actually computers behind the scenes uh, there are many but they're hidden right you don't normally see uh, you know the computers that are that are monitoring the engine and uh, adjusting the fuel flow and airflow in the engine and all that kind of stuff you don't even see that stuff and where the future of AI is going to be it's going to be exactly the same it's going to be just embedded absolutely everywhere in our environment but not necessarily in places that you would see it it's not like the future is going to be robot butlers yeah, yeah. Uh, you know that's not the future of ai the future of ai is that ai is going to be embedded on your engine in your car as it, as it is right now you know increasingly on all the apps in your smartphone everywhere that you have to make a decision there's going to be ai embedded
3: do, do you find as well there's a uh, dissonance between what the general public understand to be AI and actually what is real AI. Yes,
4: absolutely. There's a huge dissonance between... I say, I think an awful lot of people think AI is what I would call the Hollywood dream. You know, this idea of building machines that have rich general intelligence and that can do all the things that human beings can and maybe machines that are conscious or self-aware or whatever. And that's really not where the action is. The action is on just getting machines to do things that currently only human beings can do. I'll be back.
3: One thing we haven't talked about, and you didn't even mention in your intro, I know you've written a very, <laughs> a very good book about AI, and I was just wondering, what was your motivation for that, and what were you trying to yeah. explain to So to so
4: my book... Well, I've written a couple of books. i wrote. I mean, so here's what happened. This is literally what happened. 2014, I was sat at my desk, and the phone went, and it was the BBC News desk, and they said, would I come on and be interviewed? Because there was this guy called Elon Musk, Mm -hmm. who says that AI might be the end of humanity. And uh, in the end I didn't do it. I thought, well, they'll probably get somebody good to do it. Uh, (laughs) And what happened was there were all these kinds of stories that suddenly started appearing in the press, you know, that AI might might be the end of humanity. And I looked around and there was nobody responding to these. There was nobody talking about what AI is really about and whether these fears were grounded or not and all that kind of stuff. And so in the end, after you know seeing these stories for a couple of years, I thought, well, I have to get out there and, and respond to this. So I wrote a couple of books. So the first one was the The Ladybird Guide to Artificial Intelligence. Oh, okay. In the famous Ladybird series. It's not a jokey book, it's entirely <laughs> serious. Entirely serious in the way that you remember Ladybird books from your youth. And the second book uh, which appeared in the Pelican series is called The Road to Conscious Machines, The Story of Artificial Intelligence. And uh, it covers much the same territory as the, uh, the Ladybird book, but in a lot more depth. And it's really trying to demystify AI and to tell people about what AI really is and you know the things that you should be concerned about versus the things that you shouldn't be concerned about with AI and where it's likely to go. Some of the cool things that I think we're going to be able to do with AI in the future and so on.
3: I think it might be quite interesting as well to find out a little bit more about what you're currently looking at and focusing on and I know you've got a few postdoctorate students as well doing interesting research. Where is sort of your area of research headed?
4: Yeah, so my research is to do with what happens when AI meets AI. If you, uh, if you uh, for example, want to, if you want to book a meeting with me, you could phone me up on your phone. Uh, Or maybe, you know, in a year or two, what you'll be able to do is you'll just be able to say, Siri, call Mike Wildridge and arrange a meeting. And then maybe Siri would call me up. But why would Siri call me? Why wouldn't Siri just talk directly to my Siri? And if my Siri knows about when I like to have meetings and where I like to have meetings and so on, just like a human secretary could, then the AI can handle that on its own. And so that Siri talking to Siri... That's basically what our research is about, when AI can talk to AI, and having connected artificial intelligence. So one of the things that I've done a lot of work on over the years is about having computer programs that can negotiate with each other, uh, just in the same way, you know, we all of us have to negotiate in our lives. You know, you negotiate, you negotiate with your boss about a pay rise. You negotiate with your children about when they go to bed. And you negotiate with your partner about who's going to do the washing up and so on. And actually the truth is most of us aren't as good at negotiating as we wish we were, right? We all wish we could. were a little bit better at that. If, if my bosses are listening to this, yes. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> can we build computer programs that can negotiate either with other computer programs or with people? I mean, and one idea was if we have computer programs that are really good at negotiating, then maybe everything that you buy could become a negotiation. You wouldn't have to accept a, a given... You know, you could you could negotiate a, a, a bespoke contract for absolutely everything that you do. I mean, that's one dream. We're no, not anywhere near that now. Right. Um, a lot of the work there has been actually on having computer programs That don't get emotional or stressed out about trying to make a hard, run a hard bargain. You know, they're computer programs, so they don't do that. And actually, if you, you can use those to train people, and by exposing people to this hard bargaining, they can become better negotiators themselves. So, very
3: interesting. Okay, yeah. That, yeah, that's a very novel idea of looking at it. Most people think that it's the machine taking over, and a lot of people who are, I don't know, slightly in the logistic view of being scared of the machines ruling the world, this is actually where we could actually learn from them and use exactly. them as a potential tool. Interesting, so we're talking about applications where machines might be fairer or less emotional or things like that. Um, is the law one of these big areas that AI could be uh, used for in sort of practical manner?
4: Yes, there's a huge amount of work looking at, for example, automating legal reasoning. I mean, trying to just understand laws and be able to apply them and to spot cases, you know, this is where this particular law applies or this is where this particular circumstance applies and and so on. You've got to be a bit, I mean, you're in very sensitive territory there with legal applications, you know, when you've got to exercise a huge amount of caution when you've got AI programs making decisions that affect human beings. So there's lots of potential there, but we need to tread very carefully, I think, in that kind of space.
2: The law is enough of a minefield in everyday life, let alone when looking at AI. But luckily there are experts who are dedicated to helping us navigate through it all. We were lucky enough to catch up with one of them who shared some of his detailed knowledge.
1: My name is Ryan Abbott. I'm professor of law and health sciences at the University of Surrey School of Law. And one of my research areas is the role of artificial intelligence in the law, including with respect to tort liability and autonomous vehicles. I have a book out published last year from Cambridge University Press, The Reasonable Robot, Artificial Intelligence and the Law, which looks at how disruptive technologies like self-driving cars will pose new social and legal challenges and how the legal system should adapt to deal with this in ways that best promote social value.
2: Some rather big words thrown about there. Let's track back and get Ryan to give us some definitions for this complicated legal terminology.
1: Tort, in addition to being a cake, more importantly in the law refers to a branch of law that is generally thought of as accident law it is civil sorts of injuries as opposed to criminal sorts of injuries which the state pursues where one person injures another other than under contract so this is not for example where you have two businesses breaching a contract between each other it is more something like where someone runs over a pedestrian with their car or sets fire to their neighbor's fence or chops down their tree. Uh, so it is a civil injury from one person to another where the law may say, you have the right to demand compensation for this injury. So for example, in the context of driving, you know it's generally the case, or has until now generally been the case that people cause accidents. Something like 94% of car accidents are caused by human error. and The court essentially asks, would a reasonable person have caused this accident? If a reasonable person would have caused the accident, say someone jumps in front of your car and no one would have stopped in time, you aren't liable for it, even though you may have caused harm. If on the other hand, a reasonable person wouldn't have caused the accident you caused, for example, because you were fiddling with the radio dials and didn't notice someone walking in front of your car, then you are liable for it.
2: So how do robots and driverless cars come into the paradigm? Is there anything in the legal framework that already covers them off? Or do we have to throw out the rule book and start again?
1: It is certainly the case that dealing with technology is not new for the law, dealing with advances in technology and dealing with the interface between people and machines. For example, accidents caused by human drivers involve the car as an integral part of that equation. And sometimes, for instance, an accident is a person's fault because they failed to slam on the brakes quickly enough. And sometimes it's the vehicle's fault. The brakes weren't working or they had substandard brakes or so forth. And so the law already has a means of distinguishing, you know, who should be liable in a case like that. Now, of course, even before we had artificial intelligence and self-driving cars, uh, you know, or even though that's now the case, you know, nowhere do machines have legal personality. So it is never that the car per se is liable for it. But when you have a commercial product like a car that is liable, the manufacturer or supplier of the car is generally responsible for accidents it causes. Although it can get more complex, for example, if the car came with working brakes and you didn't properly maintain them, or maybe the mechanic didn't do a proper job servicing it, or perhaps there was a certain way you needed to interact with the car in order to avoid the accident and you weren't familiar enough with it. So there can be complex issues involving, you know, who is liable or what, in, you know, for example, a company is liable when a machine causes an accident. And broadly speaking, there's two sorts of ways of dealing with it. You could have a new statute enacted by Parliament in the UK that places certain requirements on manufacturers. For example you will be liable for the operation of self-driving car five or ten years from sale, after which liability passes on to a consumer, right? Or you can leave it to courts, which has traditionally been the case with tort law, for essentially judges to decide things in light of earlier case law precedent and to expand precedent into some of these new sorts of situations, you know, which again, are new but are not totally unprecedented because, you know, vehicles now require upgrades and sometimes there are recalls and they have to be appropriately serviced. You know, it might be, for example, that the government decides all manufacturers have to operate from common platforms for self-driving cars to deal with the challenges, for example, of, you know, cars that can't communicate with others or manufacturers that go out of business or manufacturers or consumers could be required to go to third parties that are responsible for this sort of thing that accept liability for it. So there are unanswered questions and regulators are still thinking through some of these issues and the best ways of dealing with it. You know, controversially, for example, there was a European Commission expert report a few years ago that suggested perhaps we should create a new sort of legal personality for things like self-driving cars that could be liable for it. You know, that could be a robot not being a a legal person in the sense that a person is, but having some sort of legal personality like a company so that it could be liable for accidents and it could have its own insurance policy.
2: So is the law holding the technology up at the moment? Is the reason we don't already have self-driving cars on the road to do with the fact that we can't legally decide who's to blame in the case of an accident?
1: Whether or not self-driving cars could be operating generally on the roads, you know, if it wasn't for current regulations in place, you know, is a challenging technical question. You know, my general understanding of it is that we aren't quite there yet with self-driving cars. A number of of car manufacturers were saying, you know, in the 2010s that they would have fully autonomous vehicles ready to roll out uh, sometime last decade. That didn't happen. Some of them are blaming regulations for not being able to roll that out right now. I think a couple of things worth bearing in mind is one of the nice things about self-driving cars is generally that they will only continue to get safer uh, while human drivers don't. So even if we are being delayed a few years in these sorts of rollouts, you know, those few years will come with, you know, substantial safety gains likely. You know, on the other hand, there is a definite cost to being too risk adverse about letting self-driving cars on the road because. As I mentioned, 94% of car accidents are caused by human error. Human error kills more than a million people in car accidents worldwide each year, some 30,000 plus in the US, some 3,000 plus in the UK. And self-driving cars don't have to be perfectly safe to generate social benefits. They just have to be safer than human drivers. And the bar for that is fairly low, uh, lower in the US than it is in the UK, but still.
2: Additional safety and protection is always a bonus, wherever it applies. So let's leave the law behind and get back to John and Michael.
3: We've come to the outskirts of the, the city here. We're yep. sort of driving through a well, little village now, but there's lovely green, very British-looking fields. It's a lovely time of year. Everything's looking very vibrant. It made me think about um, AI and the countryside a little bit, and maybe about sustainability. You touched upon that before, but do you think there's further uses where AI could help improve the way we sort of interact with our planet?
4: I think there are. I mean, I think it's, if you think about agriculture, for example, One immediate application for AI is, you know, for farmers keeping track of the state of their crops and their estate, generally. You can have drones, the automatic patrolling drones, that are able to detect the signs of disease. A really cute application I saw recently, and a real one, is the idea of controlling weeds in fields. And at the moment, what we do is we spray these fields with weed killers, and it's not great for the environment for all sorts of very obvious reasons. But you can have automated weeding robots that can identify individual weeds and either just chop them off or just just inject a small amount of weed killer specifically for that weed. So we're coming up to... This is one of my favourite spots in in Oxfordshire. There's a very famous pub here called The Trout. And if we look on the left as we pass, as we go over the bridge, it's got a great beer terrace overlooking the River Thames. And lots of famous people drink here. It used to be a haunt of... C.S. Lewis, one of the famous Oxford professors who wrote the Narnia stories yep. and J.R.R. Tolkien who wrote the uh, Lord, of, Lord, the Lord of the Rings and so on. Uh, they bit. all used to come here and, uh, for a couple of pints.
3: Oh, very nice too. Um, so this is where you do some of your deep thinking. This is
4: where my I'm, <laughs> I'm very deep <laughs> thinking. The problem is remembering it afterwards.
3: Do you think there's five or six points that you could, could share just to give people a better understanding of things that are often misunderstood? AI? Or is there any terminology that people should, yeah. or any concepts that people should actually understand before trying to, yeah. to look at this? Well,
4: I think number one is us AI researchers are not trying to build all-knowing machines, you know, the super brain type things. That's not what it's about. Number two, we don't try and model the brain. That's not the way we do it. There are some techniques called neural networks, which are very popular at the moment, and these are inspired by the structure of the brain, but we're not trying to build brains. That's not, they're not really artificial brains. Actually, there are some crazy people out there who are trying to build artificial brains, but they're, they're, <laughs> we'll they're, they're, about they're, they're crazy people. <laughs> I think the other one is, you know, when people start telling you, when, when somebody says, oh, we've got superhuman performance in the game of chess, we've got a program that can play the game of chess or the game of Go or whatever it is, far, far better than any human could do, and they say, this is superhuman performance. That doesn't mean it can do anything else whatsoever. When people talk about superhuman intelligence, it doesn't mean, you know, robot butlers tomorrow.
3: I'm sorry, sir, I cannot iron your trousers.
4: Number four is it's very easy to talk about thinking machines. People you know, because we we associate thinking with intelligence. We're not building thinking machines. Thinking is, uh, we don't really know what thinking is. So we're not getting any close to sentience or anything like that? No, and we don't really know what we're looking for there. We don't really quite understand what sentience is and we've got some clues we've got some ideas but that's all they really are and i think we've got a long way to go before we really understand that the big problem of consciousness right In understanding consciousness is the following we know that certain electrochemical processes in the brain and there are millions of them every second probably billions of them that go on every every second in your brain somehow those physical processes give rise to human consciousness and self-awareness and the idea that we can experience things from our own perspective as individual human beings. So we know that, right, from just from our common sense experience. Mm-hmm. We haven't got the foggiest idea how the two are connected. That's That's called the big problem of consciousness, right? We don't have the foggiest idea. And so the idea that we would build conscious machines without having some clue about how it works in people, I think, seems a bit implausible. For the last one, I think... What I would say is if if you read about some AI, the best response is to start out by being skeptical because there are a lot of people out there who are building things which are not really AI in any real sense, but for various reasons, I wanna try and tell you that it is AI. So be skeptical, it's always safe to be skeptical. Oh, and by the way, if you're you're ever unfortunate enough to meet somebody who builds AI systems and they, they try and tell you something, there's a really good question to ask and the question is does it scale you know whenever somebody comes along to you and they've got oh this have got this really clever program that does this just look at them hard in the eye and say does it scale and what that means is you're showing me this on some toy little example does it work in the real world and uh, they will start to bluster and harumph a bit because actually hardly anything scales to the real world so I say, I think, you know, the dream of jumping a car and there's no steering wheel, you know, maybe, maybe the, the front seats are even facing backwards. You know, he knows, that's a, that's a way off. But at the same time, I mean, smart cruise control systems are just gonna get, uh, are gonna get smarter and smarter. And as they do that, they're gonna save lives on a, on a, on a large scale, which I think is, is, is really wonderful.
2: We'll leave John and Michael there and wrap up on such an interesting and positive note. We do hope you've learned a few things during your time with us today and that we've managed to capture your imagination when it comes to the wide potential of AI and automation, especially in relation to things on four wheels. Please join us again next time on the Future of the Car by Audi Update, where we will be heading overseas to Switzerland and taking a grand tour of the country in an Audi Q4 e-tron. Along the way, we will be looking at the subject of electric vehicle charging infrastructure and talking to an exciting range of people who are all impacted by its development. Thanks very much and goodbye.